Tonight's Bible reading is from Mark chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People would bring little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. This is God's word. If you are joining us tonight, we're working our way through Mark 8 to 10 over the summer. Uh, Discipleship. What does discipleship look like? Let me lead us in prayer as we begin tonight. Our Father, what wonderful truths that we've sung. That we can sing of Christ. That he, those he saves are his delight, precious in his holy sight. He'll not let our souls be lost bought by him at such a cost. And Father, we pray that as we turn to your word and think about faithfulness in human relationships, particularly that of marriage, the Lord Jesus will be our example, the one who was faithful even unto death for us. We will be clear this evening on what your word says. And looking to him, would you strengthen our resolve to live this way, we pray in his name. Amen. Chapter 8 to 10, then, of Mark's Gospel, the question is, really, what is discipleship? What does following Jesus Christ look like? And obviously, we're in chapter 10, so it's been applied in all sorts of ways. Uh, But uh, there's a slight change of direction here in chapter 10. You can see there's movement. Chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus left that place. He leaves Galilee. It's the last time he's in Galilee in the Gospel, and uh, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And there's a slight shift of what he's going to talk about in discipleship. So if you can just glance down at the headings, the headings are a good, useful clue Let's apply discipleship, says Jesus, to marriage and divorce, to how we think of children and babies, 13 to 16, and then how we think of money. Now, those three things will have a massive impact upon any culture. You look at our culture and the shifts there's been, how you view marriage and divorce 
how you view children, the most vulnerable and unborn children, how you view money, what you do with it, how any culture answers those questions will shape it massively. So highly contemporary stuff, of course, from Jesus. And in these three issues, as in most of the rest of the section, here are three ways in which Jesus is utterly out of step with 21st century culture. We almost could not be further from him. So let's not be too shocked by that. If you remember, we said uh, uh, Phil's been taking us through most of this material, but in one sense, the headline over the whole section would be, uh, if you turn back a page, chapter 8, verse 34, here is the way of the cross and here is the life of the cross. Chapter 8, verse 34 is the sort of headline over chapters 8 to 10. He, Jesus, called the crown to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And so to be a follower of Jesus Christ will mean to conform to his word, to obey him, despite the pressures of the world to live as they desire. So followers of Jesus Christ will deny themselves, take up their cross, follow him. That is, obey him in how we think of marriage and divorce, in how we think of children, in how we think of money. But tonight we're just on the first of those on marriage and divorce. What does discipleship look like in those areas? Now, no doubt, of course, we, in, in a room, um, uh, many are away, but still we're a reasonable crowd, in a room such as this, we come with different views or thoughts or feelings, perhaps better. Marriage and divorce, well, brilliant, for I am single and neither of those categories applies to me. I think you'll see there's much here for you. Perhaps more acutely, some, of course, sit here and think, I don't want to hear this. I'm inside a marriage that I hate. Or I am divorced. And this just stirs up anger, betrayal, regret. But it is my prayer for all of us that Jesus' words will do as much good this evening as we look at them. Here we are then in chapter 10. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 1. Let's uh, pick it up. Let me uh, introduce what's going on here. Chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus left that place, Galilee, and went into the region of Judea. That's important. And across the Jordan, again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees come and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? It's a test. There's no secrets. There's no uh, um, uh, dramatic irony going on here. The, the writers reveal what's going on. It's a test. What is the test? Because actually most rabbis agreed on divorce and the principles, kind of. What's the test? The test is where they are. They're in Judea, ruled over that region, region by Herod Antipas, Now, if we'd worked our way all the way through uh, Mark's gospel, you can read in Mark chapter 6, the incident with John the Baptist. So Herod Antipas has married a woman called Herodias. That's okay, you think, apart from Herodias was married to his brother Philip. So he's married his sister-in-law, and she had just walked away. And John the Baptist says, O king, that's despicable. 
and uh, that doesn't go down so well. And so if you know, if you know the account of Mark chapter 6, Herodias, the, 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 the woman who's left Philip and uh, uh, married Herod, she's angry, she's furious, and eventually demands the head of John the Baptist on a platter, which she gets at a dinner party, all slightly awkward and brutal. Jesus, your mate John the Baptist, you know what happened to him? What do you say about divorce and remarriage? Now you're in Judea, ruled over by Herod. Do you see the issue? This is not a th- just a sort of meat, uh, sorry, uh, uh, a moot theological debate. Someone's died for telling the truth on this. What's the test? That's what it is. And so Jesus replies. Now I'm going to be a little naughty and uh, 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 go through the text in a slightly topsy-turvy order because uh, uh, as it runs, you get the exception, then the rule. Uh, and I want to turn it round. So we're going to look at the text like this. Three things. Marriage is one flesh for life. Hard hearts mean exceptions are needed, but discipleship involves self-denial. Okay, that's how we're going to go through it. Uh, Marriage is one flesh for life. Second, hard hearts mean exceptions are needed. Thirdly, discipleship involves self-denial. Slightly odd, but then again... There is some wisdom in it, I think, in turning it upside down. I was influenced. John Stott, I was rereading him. Uh, He made the observation. In my pastoral ministry, I have found Jesus' priority a helpful one. Whenever someone wants to speak to me about divorce, I decline. Until we first talked about marriage and reconciliation. So we're going to do it in that order. First, then, marriage is one flesh... For life, verses 6 to 9. We'll come back to Moses, but let's just pick up what happened at the beginning of creation. Verse 6. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Okay. Let me just say three quick things as we work our way through. Two genders, one flesh, God binds them. Okay, we'll work through that. Two genders, one flesh, God binds them. Two genders. Verse 6. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Gender is binary. That is not a popular statement amongst some. But biblically, you can't get away from that. Gender is binary. Male. Female. Now, while that is the case, the Bible does not have a huge amount to say about what it means to be male or female. It has some things, but um, I think there is one reason that modern modern society is in absolute chaos because it has these incredibly rigid categories of male and female. Let me give you one example. This was in the paper a little while back. Uh, the columnist, Janice Turner, I don't know if you like her or not, but um, uh, she's no Christian. I wouldn't even say she's conservative in her views necessarily. But uh, she wrote an article saying, for the first time in her life, she'd complained to the BBC. Why so? She'd been listening to a Radio 4 program which interviewed Jennifer, a girl aged 10. Jennifer identified as gender non-binary. And uh, in the interview, uh, the mother was, uh, was also alongside there, Jennifer's mother, uh, and she explained how uh, age three, she decided that her daughter wasn't truly a girl, age three, because age three, her daughter said, can I have a pirate party? 
Don't you want a princess party, darling? No, I want a pirate party. Ooh. And so uh, the mother did a bit of Google, and um, uh, on her own, with Dr. Google's help, she decided that her child was a trans boy. And so from the age of three onwards, they referred to their daughter as he. And they dressed her in male clothes, and they gave her a boy's name. Aged eight, the girl said, can I play with Barbie dolls, please? So her parents were a bit confused, and the mum returned to Dr. Google again and decided, well, maybe my daughter is not transgender. She must be between genders. And so that's what she told her daughter. Now, the economist, uh, listening to this, getting incandescent, wrote into the BBC and said, excuse me, not once in this half-hour interview was the question put to the mother, do you think it's appropriate to tell a three-year-old that her gender is wrong because of the toys she wants to play with? Do you not think it's inappropriate as a mother to ask the question which the mother did, darling, if you were a man, would you be straight or gay when her daughter was eight? That's a Janice Turner. She's, I guess you'd describe her as a liberal commentator, perhaps. Not conservative. Just saying, this is nuts. This is nuts. If you tell a three-year-old, it's all very confusing about your gender, darling, she will be confused. And of course, it's one of those issues where in our modern society, no one really knows what to think. You've got those passionately campaigning, and uh, the government and Justin Greening and Maria Miller are trying to push through legislation to make it far easier just to change your gender. And, and yet, feminist icons, Jermaine Greer says, Hel- Hel- excuse me, what? Uh, and they're all at war, and oh, who are we meant to listen to? In, in mo- there are two genders, male and female. But it is okay for a little girl to like trucks and a little boy to enjoy dolls. That's okay. You don't have to be rigid about it. But there are two genders, male and female, according to Jesus. Two genders. One flesh, verse 8. You get it stressed twice. Um, Repeat uh, up verse 7. This reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So you can leave your parents because you're not one flesh with them. You don't have the same level of unity with them, but you can never leave your spouse because two become one. One plus one equals one. And if you leave, you tear a part of yourself. You tear yourself in two when you leave a marriage. One plus one equals one. Now, the possibility of that union is wonderful. But don't you rip it apart. Two genders, one flesh. God binds them, verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Marriage is a union that God forges. And therefore, to separate is always rebellion against him. So can we be in no confusion when we listen to Jesus 
for a Christian, getting a divorce is wrong. It's never God's plan. If you're married, work at your marriage. Come back to that. For those of us who are, who are not yet married yet, uh, I guess the implication is marry wisely. Marry wisely, because it is for life. Marry wisely. If you desire to marry, pray that God will grant you a godly partner. Uh, marry someone who desires to serve Jesus for his glory. Uh, it's always a bit glum when uh, you see someone who is, is zealous and, and passionate and utterly servant-hearted and going for the Lord, uh, and, and they get engaged and then marry someone who isn't keen, and they just go off the boil. And all their passion and all their zeal and all their ambitions just go. It's very sad. Or I guess even more obvious, uh, someone who is a Christian marries someone who doesn't know the Lord, isn't a follower. Oh. Well, that will always be painful because you're pulling in different directions. I'm serving the Lord. No, we're not. And we're one flesh. And it's always painful. Dare I say, I've never met someone who knowingly has done that, married someone who is not a Christian and not regretted it. I'm afraid. Marriage is one flesh for life. That's the truth that was woven into creation. That's why Jesus is quoting from Genesis 1 and 2. But it's not always that clear cut. Uh, and so let's get back, uh, go back up on verses uh, 3 to 5. Hard hearts mean exceptions are needed. Sometimes you need exceptions as well. Hard hearts mean exceptions are needed. Okay, pick it up, verse 2. So uh, the Pharisees come and test him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus says, what does the Bible say? That's a good it's essentially what he replies. Verse 3, what did Moses command you, he replied. Uh, and they said, well, back in Deuteronomy 24, we know this. Back in Deuteronomy 24, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of, of divorce and send her away. And why was that? Verse 5, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. But it was never the ideal. Now, do go away and read Genesis 24. We haven't had it read earlier. I have to say, I don't think it's a particularly easy passage to read, Deuteronomy 24, on marriage. But as an absolute minimum, what it's doing in, uh, in that book is saying, slow right down. It's making divorce hard. Slow right down as a minimum. I mean, the details do get a little bit complicated, I think. But what becomes very obvious in Deuteronomy 24, the Lord will tolerate divorce in certain, certain circumstances, but he never approves of it. But the reality is hard-heartedness by one or both parties means that sometimes marriages fail. They shouldn't, but they do. When you get to the New Testament, what are the exceptions? Well, they aren't here in Mark chapter 10. We have to turn elsewhere for them. But the two obvious exceptions in the New Testament are this, adultery and abandonment. 
So the references are there on your sheet. First, adultery. Uh, Matthew 19, verse 9, as Jesus says much the same in Matthew 5, verse 32. Let me read it. Anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. See, anyone who divorces his wife, apart from where there's some form of infidelity, adultery, and marries another woman commits adultery. So there is an exemption there or an exception there. There's something according to Jesus, about adultery that affects the one flesh bond of marriage so that maybe, maybe it ends the marriage. Not necessarily. But there is something about sexual sin that strikes right at the heart of two becoming one flesh. If you are the injured party, the innocent party, Jesus says you may divorce and you may remarry. Now, that doesn't mean you have to. And uh, circumstances here within this church where there has been adultery within marriages and it's been painful and it's messy and it's awkward and it takes time, but the couple have been reconciled and gone forward and had a good marriage for uh, decades afterwards. So you don't have to. It's not saying you must, but that, that possibility is open. If your spouse commits adultery, you're the innocent party, divorce and remarriage is possible. Adultery is the one exemption. The second is abandonment. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 15, Paul says, if the unbelieving spouse leaves, let it be so. The believing brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. There the assumption is only someone who's not a Christian would walk away from a marriage. A Christian never would. That's the assumption that Paul makes. But if your spouse just leaves and reconciliation is impossible, they're just gone, well, there may be divorce and adultery is the right, excuse me, divorce and remarriage, excuse me, um, is the right way forward there. I think most Christians, I'm not sure, but certainly many would hold that violence within a marriage counts as abandonment. So there are the two exemptions, adultery and abandonment, which means that divorce is permitted, but not for any reason. Divorce is permitted, but if you can work through the problems, if you can work through adultery and abandonment and come to a good place again, and that's the best thing to do. But divorce is permitted, but only on those two grounds, specifically. See, here's what you can't do. You can't say, do you know what? Our marriage has gone stale. We're just bored with one another. It's been nine months, and we've just had it. We can't be, you know, or whatever it is, nine years, 19 years, 90 years. That'll be quite a marriage. Um, uh, we, we've had, you can't, and so we want someone else. You can't do that. A marriage has gone stale. We don't get on very well. We're a bit bored. I don't find them attractive anymore. Not acceptable on any level as a grounds to leave your marriage. Now that again is unusual in our culture. But Jesus would say, no, to do so, 
To leave a marriage on those sort of grounds is sinful. And remarriage is not an option. Now, the dear old Church of England is eccentric and is in a mess in lots of different ways, but actually on this issue is good. So for myself as an ordained minister, I am not allowed to remarry divorcees. I just don't have the legal right to do it unless I fill in all sorts of lengthy forms and then have an interview with the Bishop of London and only he can grant permission. And that is a good system. Unusually in the Church of England. That is good because it is saying we don't, we don't deal with disposable marriages. Sometimes, in certain circumstances, divorce and then remarriage is possible, but we will be very slow. So exceptions, yeah, there are exceptions due to hard hearts. Exceptions are there because of sin, yes, but God wove permanent, one flesh marriage between a man and a woman into creation. That's his ideal. Marriage is one flesh for life. Hard hearts mean exceptions are needed. Third, let's try and get a bit more practical here. Discipleship involves self-denial. Verse 10. When they're in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. In other words... The disciples say, can you, can you just expand a little bit on this? Yeah, don't divorce. That's what you need to know. Really, is the, the gist of verses 10 to 12. Just don't do it. Oh, there are certain small, few exceptions. But broadly, just don't do it. Now, of course, you and I know that the modern view of marriage is, as a disposable thing is... Well, that's how it is. But it's abhorrent biblically. People treat marriage a bit like a coat. It's all right for a few years, but then time for a new one. A bit bored. Red this season. I need a red coat now. Brown. It was very last year. I need a red one. Uh, marriage. It worked for a while, but I've changed as a person and I need someone else to encourage me, whatever it is. But, uh, of course, this is not a disinterested thing. The, uh, I reckon probably once a month, I keep an eye out for such things, about once a month, there'd be an article in the newspaper, uh, one of the columnists, or, or a glossy in the, in the weekend supplement, saying something on the lines of, we're not humans, are not meant for monogamy. Uh, so I just keep them through, and I look through the last 12 months, uh, and certainly at least once a month, there was a significant article on swinging, how we should all do that, because it's good for our marriages. Uh, Open marriages, how they're a good thing. Monogamy, science has proven that it's not a good thing, or some guff like that, as if you can demonstrate that. I don't even know how you go about that. About at least once a month. So here was uh, July's article, and uh, let me read you just the headline. The marriage dilemma. Is infidelity inevitable? Question mark. Intro text. This summer, should newlyweds across the land take a vow? Really, this summer, should newlyweds across the land vow to take a reality check on monogamy? Sixteen years into her second marriage, Ada Calhoun knows that the line between faithfulness and infidelity is always blurred. 
The line between faithfulness and infidelity is always blurred. That is not a blurry line. Most people are pretty clear. Faithful, unfaithful. Spouse, not spouse. Sleeping with not spouse, that ain't faithful. That is not a blurry line. I don't want to be silly or dramatic about it, but that's just the sort of, you know, you see the tone of it. The tone of it is, of course, of course, of course, infidelity. I mean, just infidelity, faithfulness, you know, we all know that, don't we? That is the tone. That is not an argument at any level. Do you, you do see that, don't you? It is not a logical argument. It's not even an emotional argument. It's not an argument. It's just an assertion. But you get that once a month, at least. What? Question. Why do you think people want to write articles saying being faithful to your spouse for the whole of your life is impossible? Why do people want to write those articles saying you just can't do it? Because they haven't and they don't want to. Infidelity is not inevitable. Marriage failure is not inevitable. They're the consequence of laziness. Because marriage is hard work. If you think that marriage is all about making you happy and keeping you feeling happy without cost, you will be devastated, appalled, shocked. It is not. Sometimes marriage is wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And you laugh and you giggle uh, and you, have share, every, you share things in common and you expose yourself emotionally and you confess your weaknesses, your failings, your darkest thoughts and you're still loved and you're still accepted and sometimes marriage is wonderful and you have pet names that only you use and no one else could know because it would be deeply embarrassing and all the things like that. It's just great sometimes. And other times it's hard. It's war. It's a cold war of just not talking to one another for days, for weeks, meaningfully. Or it's an angry war of shouting, of throwing, of hitting. Sometimes, not acceptable. The reason that divorce and marriage are here in Mark chapter 8 to 10, this section on deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, is because sometimes marriage is a cross you take up. Sometimes it's really hard to obey Jesus and love your spouse. Sometimes marriages are suffering. Sometimes. Perhaps your spouse is deeply unwell and caring for them is utterly draining and it goes on for years. Perhaps your spouse goes through a season, just a season of being unpleasant, hard work. Modern culture will hold open the door for you and say, you deserve better. Faithfulness is impossible for us humans. Leave. And there is the door 
that every month at least, the, 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 the papers, the, the TV throw at you, there's the door. Just walk through. Quit. That's the easy option. And as a man said to me this week, in my own extended family, he's not a Christian, but having left his wife and two children, said, I realized I deserve to be happy. And I'm afraid, I said to him, and what about your children? Now you made vows for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death us do part, according to God's holy law. And marriage is a promise. It's a vow. And I have to say, marriage in one sense is you, you, you stand on your wedding day and you say, I am going to try my absolute hardest. I'm going to try harder than I've ever tried anything in my life. This relationship will probably be the greatest test of my integrity I'll ever face. And I'm going to work desperately hard at it. Marriage at times is a place of discipleship and self-denial. But the rewards are great. There is the reward of doing the right thing before the Lord. And there's also the rewards within marriage. Forgive me, but, you know, anecdotally. uh, Kerry, my wife and I, we were married 17 years. The first year was... Shocking. We broke so many things and we barely spoke for long periods and when we did, the volume was 11. Um, It was shocking. We got through that. The next few years were pretty good. I have to say, they were great in many, many ways. And then circumstances affect you and there's disappointment and for us, it was years of infertility and inability to have children. Uh, And you get over that and then, oh, you have a children and you have uh, children and then, you know, we, we lost a little girl and circumstances put pressure upon your marriage circumstances. And then you yourselves, being two sinners, you put pressures upon your marriage. And there are times where we've been enormous comfort and blessing and the most wonderful presence in one another's lives. And there are times when we've been less. I'll leave the details there. Marriage ebbs and flows. But to get to great, you do have to work through annoying, irritating, painful, awkward And then you get to great for a period. And then to get to even better, you work through, golly, you're annoying, and so am I. And we're driving one another nuts. And really, golly, another 20 years of this, you must be joking. (laughs) And then you reach really great. And sometimes you reach wonderful. But you only get there by going through, this is pretty hard work right now. Discipleship involves self-denial. It's true of the whole of life. It's certainly true of marriage. Now let me, I'm going to move away from the text slightly, make two final comments, and then we're done. Two final comments uh, as we move slightly away from what Jesus is saying here. I want to make a comment on before marriage and a comment on beyond marriage. Okay, before and beyond. Before marriage, let me make a quick comment here. In the 21st century, sex has become something we are rather than something we do. That is not profound. Any commentator will tell you that. It's not just an action that we do. All of a sudden, sex has become who we are. 
So in the 21st century, we define ourselves in sexual terms as sexual beings in a way unprecedented in history. The danger is you start to view everyone as a sexual thing. And that's kind of what happens often in our culture. So people are viewed in that way. And as soon as everything gets advertised sexually, and just that sort of sexual frisson becomes there. Now, as Christians, which most of us, I take it, probably are here this evening, just given that that's the, the water in which we swim, just be careful in a couple of ways. Can I just say to us, look, please don't view every member of the opposite sex as a potential romantic or sexual partner. Just don't think in those categories. Or related, but slightly the other way around, don't view them as potential temptation. It does drive me a little bit nutty occasionally. Occasionally I hear it, observe it here. Occasionally you go elsewhere to other churches uh, and observe it. It is very odd where boys only talk to boys and girls only talk to girls. And you comment and say, all the boys just talk to the boys, all the girls just talk to the girls. What's going on here? It's safer that way. And at that point, a church is just given into the world's agenda that says you cannot have healthy, good, platonic relationships. The New Testament says, clearest, I guess most clearly 1 Timothy 5, relate to one another as brothers and sisters. It doesn't say anywhere, if you're a boy and you look at a girl, go, they might be like, they might lead me astray. It doesn't say that anywhere in the New Testament, actually. It doesn't say, girls, those boys, they want to do wicked things, all of them, all of them. It doesn't say that. It says, relate to one another as brothers and sisters. That's what we've got to aim for. Oh, without being daft. Oh, without flirting, without misleading. But that's, isn't that what we want before marriage? To relate in that way? Can we be a church with a very healthy, platonic relationships? We all need them. And um, let's just not be odd. Let's not just give in to the world's agenda and say that's impossible before marriage. Last little thing, beyond marriage. Jesus is very clear then that one flesh marriage is permanent in this life. In this life. Not in the next. Even the best of marriages here and now are penultimate. In the next life, what are we? Oh, we're brothers and sisters still. So let's get good at that now. But we're not husbands and wives in the new creation. In the new creation, marriage, which real marriage, those terms, it's capital M marriage, marriage between Jesus and his bride, defined as the church, you, me. And marriage in this life is a model to help us see that. We model it well, we model it badly, but it is a model. And that's what we're heading for. And we need to know that, that Jesus is the groom who died for his wife, his spouse, the church. And of course, we need to know what he's like. As we've sung wonderfully this evening, he will never let us go. And he will never walk away. He will hold us fast. 
even when we're unfaithful, he'll always be faithful. Even when we're indifferent, he'll treat us with a passionate love. He is the one who denies himself so that we might live and says in your own relationships, follow me. Deny yourselves for the sake of others. Follow me. My... um, the brightest man in my, oh, I don't know how you define it. When, uh, when I was uh, in my early 20s and um, thinking about Christian ministry and going off to theological college, undoubtedly the, uh, the brightest, the best, the one who was going to set the world on fire was a man called, oops, I won't give you his name. Uh, let's call him for the sake of this evening, Ben. Um, uh, ben was the brightest and uh, everyone expected great things. He's super bright, brilliant communicator, fantastic preacher, just great with people. Uh, he was the golden child, but, no one anno- but, but not annoying. You know, some people manage to be brilliant and you like them. Uh, that's uh, two things I failed on. Um, <laughs> but Ben was just, uh, and he married a fantastic girl. She's just terrific. Um, and probably about six months before their marriage, she contracted uh, chronic fatigue. But, um, you know, it would pass. Uh, but it didn't. Um, and uh, it always limited what they were able to do quite significantly and they've been married 20 years now and not often do you have that conversation I had the one-on-one conversation with him a little while ago do you do you ever wonder what do you ever what if sorry to ask do you ever wonder what if yeah of course I do Marriage to, well, of course, all the dreams we had have gone. Oh, we thought there'd be a little season of chronic fatigue, but not 20 years. We thought there'd be loads of children running around, but there's no energy for that. We thought we'd do this in church ministry and go and do this and maybe over... None of that. All the dreams have died. But you're all right, aren't you? You're going pretty well. Yeah, I think we are. I'd say our marriage is good. And what you put that down to? I made a promise. Oh, I've thought about getting out. But I made a promise. And the truth is because I made a promise. And I've kept going and kept going and kept going. And it's hard at times. I think I've learned more about Jesus through not achieving my dreams, it would have been possible had everything gone well in my life. I understand just a little bit more of the cost of faithfulness. Just a little bit more. I don't get faithfulness to death upon a cross, obviously. But sacrifice, I get it. I love him for it. And I take that into my marriage and love her too. If anyone would come after me, He must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for our wonderful saviour. Thank you for his faithfulness. We'll sing of that again in a moment. Thank you that despite our 
apathy. He's always active in pursuing us. Despite our fickleness, our unfaithfulness, he never, ever turns away, but loves us and loves us and loves us. Father, thank you that in doing so, he has given us life. Thank you that when we look to him and with your spirit within us, we can overcome the the most trying of circumstances in this life in order to keep going in marriages. Father, thank you for realism alongside that, that while marriage is meant permanently in this life, sometimes sin makes that impossible. And Father, for those that that touches upon most acutely, um, please forgive me for any laziness in language. Would the example, would the knowledge of how they're loved by Christ continue to do its work over the years of restoring, repairing, healing, we pray. For he is the one that we need. Above all else, above our spouses, we thank you for him and praise you. Amen.